Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series where we're talking about various Christmas traditions. And uh, last week, we talked about Christmas lights and Christmas tree. And next week, we're going to talk about Santa Claus. Very, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Um, but this week, we're going to talk about, as you can probably guess, giving gifts. And uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, giving gifts is um, just such an interesting thing because when I think about some of the most pivotal moments in my life, they're often associated with some sort of gift that was given or received. I mean, some of the big ones, whether it be waiting on Christmas morning, and I don't know what your guys' Christmas morning was like, but I was one of seven kids. We would get up at like five in the morning and at least five of us would be up. Stand, we weren't allowed to go downstairs, of course, but we'd be on the stair steps waiting for my parents to wake up and we were able to talk loud enough that that would happen. But those are very um, beautiful moments in my life. But even other, other moments in my life, some of the biggest moments in my life are associated with gift giving. I think of the, uh, the ring, the engagement ring I gave Alyssa when I asked her to marry me. That decision changed my life forever and it was built around a gift. That, I was, that was given and received, thankfully, received. But also even just as profound as the gift of salvation that Jesus gives us. So whether it be Christmas presents or whether it be wedding rings or whether it be uh, even just our salvation, like some of the most profound moments in our life around gift giving. And yet, as we saw in this clip, gift giving can sometimes be not so life-giving. And it has its own sort of mixed bag of good um, and, and, and bad. So I recently posted this on Facebook and asked people what they thought about gift giving and maybe what some of their thoughts were around how they helped it remain beautiful, but also keep it from becoming too toxic. And I got a tons of uh, different responses. One person shared with me that they absolutely loved gift giving on Christmas specifically, but then added this. She said, one Christmas when I was young, maybe 10 or 11, I remember coming downstairs with my sister and there was this huge mountain of presents. And some hours later, after we had opened all of these presents, I remember looking around at the pile of things that I had gotten and feeling empty. The stuff I got didn't make me uh, any happier. Have you ever had that experience yet? I feel like maybe most of us at some point in our childhood growing into becoming an adult realize that stuff ultimately doesn't make us happy, that it's almost the anticipation of the gift that's most of the fun, and then once you open it, it's almost a letdown many times. Um, another person struggles on the other end of gift giving, dealing with the expectation of having to give people gifts. So this is what they said. I struggle all the time with meeting the expectations of others, whether it be real or imagined. And Christmas brings this out to, in me to the extreme. It leaves me feeling anxious most of the season, but about getting, both about getting all the gifts in time without forgetting anyone and the choices that I made, not to mention spending money, which makes me anxious as well, LOL. I have not yet found a good way to counteract this. Now here's somebody who has two kids, a husband, and has been doing Christmas for a long time and still hasn't figured out how, a healthy way to overcome this sort of expectation around gift giving. Another person shared this story with me. I think this probably gets about as extreme as you can imagine. She said they had this one member of her family, extended family, that sends the entire family one email every year. One email. And uh, this email was a list of approved presents for their kids. Well, in this particular family, this is the, the craziest part. In this family, they don't even, not everyone gives gifts to everyone. They do a drawing at Thanksgiving time. So, th so they had already sent this email out with all the list of gifts that they want for their kids. In fact, they add this note. Um, 
Um, oh, by the way, our kids have a lot of stuff already, which would make me think, so don't get them anything. But you said, no, I have a lot, my kids have a lot of stuff already, so if you just want to give money, I'll, I can get them something to make sure we don't, they, they get something they don't already have. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so messed up. So they do the drawing at Thanksgiving, and um, I guess whoever got their name didn't follow up with this particular parent to get that list, and so she sent out another email saying, hey, whoever has me, if you want to email me to make sure you know, have the list of, and, and the approved list contained you know, links, Amazon links. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. If I had someone like that in my family, they wouldn't be getting any presents. And uh, if, if, if any of you have people like that in your family or if you've been that person, and honestly, I've been that person, we've probably on some level have all been that person. Um, it's just exhausting to think about. So this kind of toxic pressure makes gift giving nasty. Greed, entitlement, unhealthy expectations, they can all creep in and make gift giving really terrible. And because of this, our expectations around gifts can be really unhealthy. So unhealthy, in fact, that they actually have self-help articles on how to receive gifts you don't want. Think about that for a second. Like, we've come to a place where we've expected to get what we want, this season in particular, so much so that now professionals have to help us deal with the fact that sometimes we don't. <laughs> I'm not lying either, this thing really exists. It's on a website called WikiHow, the same website that will show you how to fix a crack in your ceiling or sell furniture online or check your braids will also show you how to react to a gift you don't like. Do you wanna learn a little bit today? Here's, here's in seven easy steps with diagrams, I should add. How to accept a gift, react to a gift that you don't like. Here it is, step one. Some of this is actually pretty good. Step one, say thank you. And, and this is actually pretty good advice. Any gift, no matter how terrible or how much you don't like it, um, is worth thanking. Um, that's pretty good. So let's see what step two is. Step two, react to the thought of the gift, right? So you might not like the gift itself, but there was, there was some thought put in behind it, and you can, you can say thanks for that. If you can't say thanks for the gift, you can at least say thanks for thinking about me. Step three is pretty much the same thing. Appreciate the intention. And I have to say, I have no idea what's going on in this picture. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you can figure it out and how this diagram helps us appreciate the intention in a gift, um, let me know afterwards. I've been trying to figure it out all week and I'm not really sure. But step four um, is, is really interesting. Um, ask questions. This is what they said and I quote the article. Ask your giver about the gift and how they thought of it. This is, good, this is a good distraction from discussing whether or not you'll use it and how often you'll use it, etc. Ask them where they bought it from and ask them if they've got one themselves or ask how it's used if that's applicable. In general, when reacting to a gift you don't like, put the burden of the conversation on the person who is gifting and not on yourself. Now, I share this list of how-to mostly as a joke, but I'm going to be honest with you. I might use some of this advice this Christmas. Uh, some of it, not all of it. Uh, I particularly love step five, lie if you're comfortable lying. I'm not making this up. This is step five for how to react to a gift you don't like. It says, if you don't have a moral issue with telling someone small lies to spare the feelings of well-intentioned people, go ahead and say you like it, even if you don't. Now, um, two thoughts on this. 
We've all done it. And don't. It's not the best way to handle it. But the next one is, is, is along those lines. Number six, they do say, tell the truth if you're close enough to the person. I just want to stop there for a second and think about this. You're telling me, and, and I've been here, friends, but as we, as we joke about this, we're, we have some distance from some of these experiences. You're telling me that in the context of gift giving, I've had so much emotional attachment to the expectation of someone's gift to me that now I have to confront the person and let them know how I really feel? I mean, think about that. And I have. I've, I've had an emotional attachment to the process of gift giving to the level where I was offended by the... But should I? Step seven, the last step is defer questions. Basically, just move the conversation along. They go on, actually. They have a number of other additional steps um, on how to, uh, react, uh, how to react emotionally to a bad gift, what to do with a bad gift if you get one, uh, which includes re-gifting, of course. Um, but they suggest, and this is another, just another nugget of practical wisdom, if you're trying to convince someone you're thankful and you're not, and you're not good at acting, then they say, um, just uh, hug it out. Because hugging is easier to pretend. Like, you don't have to convince them with your facial expressions, so just give them a hug. Now, here's the, here's the worst part. I don't know what's worse than, um, which is worse. The fact that this list exists or the fact that I'm going to use some of it this Christmas. But here's the thing. If you're struggling with dealing with bad Christmas gifts this Christmas, can I suggest that while these might be helpful, in the moment, there's a good chance that it's merely a symptom of a deeper issue. That maybe, just maybe, you've misunderstood your place in the Christmas story. In fact, I wanna suggest today that gift giving is a great tool for helping us think through the role we play in the Christmas story. So today we're gonna talk about the Christmas story and Christmas gifts and see how they fit into the story, how we fit into that story and what it says about gift giving. So we're gonna spend some time in scripture. Um, We're gonna start in the most obvious place. When you talk to people about why they give gifts on Christmas and you talk to Christians specifically, most reference a particular part of the Christmas story. Any, Any guesses? The three wise men, yeah, the magi. The reason being, of course, if you know anything about the Christmas story, is these group of Eastern philosophers who studied the stars, known as magi or wise men, in one song they're known as kings, um, they visited Jesus and they brought him three gifts. They were the first Christmas presents. So we're gonna start there and we're gonna see where that takes us. We're gonna look at their story and what we're gonna find here today, and I might say this a couple of times, we're gonna actually depart from the topic of gift giving and then come back to it later. But we're gonna spend some time looking specifically at the story of the Magi and what it has to tell us about the Christmas story. So at this point in the story, um, you can find it in Matthew chapter two, starting with verse one. So you can follow along in your, if you brought a Bible or if you have a smartphone, you can go to the YouVersion Bible app. We have an event in there. Follow along on the screen as well. But at this point in the story, in Matthew chapter two, starting with verse one, Jesus has already been born. He's already been visited by the shepherds. 
Um, he's probably already been consecrated and circumcised. We looked at that story last week, if you, if you remember, with Simeon. And so this is afterwards, and Jesus might be as old as two years old. So this is somewhere between where he was born and as old as two years old, and we'll look at why we think that in a second. So here's what happens. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now these Magi, um, they're Eastern philosophers who pay attention to the stars and to philosophies and prophecies, and they come to Israel and they're looking for what they believe will be the king of the Jews. And so that's what I want to talk about. We're going to set gift giving aside, and we're going to talk about specifically what in the world is going on in the Christmas story that they're looking for a king of the Jews, and what does it mean for Jesus to be king? The Magi are looking for a king who's been born. Now, when you think about that, it might seem a little strange. There are men from the east. Most likely, the Magi lived in the land that is now known as Iran and uh, modern Iran, and they traveled across country following a star in search of a king, which if we separate ourselves from the tradition and the songs and the carols and you think about it, you're like, that's actually different. That's a little weird. What's going on? I feel like there's a lot that's not being said to explain why they would do something like that. And, and there is a lot that's not being said and why they would do something like that. Here's some of the context. There had begun to spread throughout the world as we knew it at that time that a ruler would rise up out of Judea and rule the world. Now, historically, this was just a common idea. This was just a belief that people had, that there would be some kind of ruler that would come out of the land of Judea, maybe even be born in the village of Bethlehem, and that ruler would come and rule the world. And it had spread. It had started in Old Testament prophecy, but it had spread beyond the Jewish faith. And it had spread all the way to the east, into all over the Middle East, and even into the Roman Empire. In fact, there were Roman historians who aren't even Christians who referenced this idea. Here's this quote from a, from a Roman historian talking about this phenomenon. He says this, there had spread over all of the Orient, Middle East, an old and established belief that it was fated for men coming from Judea to rule the world. You know, there's this, this belief, this rumor had infiltrated all of society that a ruler would come out of this little nation known as Israel. This prediction, he goes on though, he, he interprets it. This prediction referring to the emperor uh, Rome as afterwards appeared from the event, the people of Judea took to themselves. In other words, this is kind of complicated English. He's saying this prediction obviously is referring to our Caesar because he's the only real ruler in the world. But those silly little Judeans keep thinking it's gonna be one of them. But obviously it's not. So in other words, even the Roman historians were aware of this belief that a ruler would rise out of Judea and they just assumed that it would be their Caesar. But the Magi thought differently. They believed that this star, which they used to guide anyways, their navigational coordinates, stars, they believed that this star was pointing to a king in Judea and it would lead them there. And so they came to that area looking for uh, someone who would be born a king to meet this king. 
And they go looking. Now, unlike GPS, stars aren't very accurate. GPS can get you within like 20 feet, so it can bring you right up to the front door. Stars, not nearly as accurate. I don't know if you knew that. Um, uh, that one's for free. And uh, so they, what happens is most likely they get to the area and they start asking these questions. They say, okay, where is the king who's been born? And we, the star brought us basically to Bethlehem or Jerusalem area. And, and word spreads out that these foreigners are looking for a king. And that word eventually makes it to Herod. Now, since there was not really any clarity around what kind of king Jesus would be, this really bothers Herod. Because if a king is born in his neighborhood, that king would obviously threaten his rule. And Herod, just as a side note, crazy, power-hungry, evil person. So he hears of a king being born. He has to do something about it. That's why in verse 3 it says this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. This was a big deal. It was a bold claim. And we know it was a big deal because of how Herod reacts. Herod tries to work with the Magi and trick the Magi into letting them know where, where it is. And so he can go and quote unquote worship the king but really he wants to kill the king. And the Magi, because of the Holy Spirit and God, they, they don't give him it away. And the mother and child, they flee and all this sort of stuff. None of it works out. And Herod, this is what happens. Skip to verse six. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he took all the information he had. He said, well, this child could be as old as two at this point. He's living in the area of Bethlehem. That's all he knew. So just to be safe, he orders the killing of all of these children. Thankfully, Jesus' parents escaped, and Jesus was spared. Now, here's the thing, friends. Herod didn't engage in a mass genocide because God had sent yet another prophet or priest. Herod didn't react this way because Jesus would grow up and become a great teacher or a nice person or a good role model or even someone who performed miracles. Herod reacted this way because there was a rumor that Jesus would be king. And it was a big deal. One of the things you need to realize about the Christmas story, and I think one thing that we sometimes miss in our carols and our Christmas traditions is this. Even gift giving, we'll get to that, back to that in a second. It's this, the Christmas story is really a story about how God came to earth to be a king. I hope that one of your traditions every year is to read the Christmas story. You can find it in the beginning of Luke and in the beginning of Matthew. I hope, I hope that's one of your traditions. If it is, and I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do it on Christmas morning, Christmas Eve, whatever, and the weeks leading up as you celebrate Advent, whatever you work it into whatever your other traditions are. But here's the challenge. Read it with a new set of eyes. Because what, what I found as I began to read through the Christmas story in light of what we're talking about today over and over and over again, it becomes evident and apparent that the Christmas story is really about how a king is born. And if that's true, 
then we need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And what does that say to us today? I think for us, sometimes it's hard to imagine Jesus as a king because as we, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, um, he doesn't really feel like a typical king, president, ruler. Um, he didn't have a palace or a castle. We associate those with kings um, or queens. He didn't have a public policy. He didn't create government ordinances. He didn't lead an army. And that's one of the things we associate with great powerful rulers is some sort of military force. Jesus, on the other hand, he led this motley misfit crew of 12 disciples. And honestly, friends, in the grand scope of the Roman Empire of that time, not very impressive. I mean, really not, not very impressive. Not impressive to Rome anyways. He barely makes it into the history books outside of the gospel. He's mentioned as this little phenomenon in Judea, but outside of the grand scope of Roman history, who cares about Jesus? And yet he was still a king, but a different kind of king. And what I want to suggest today, a better king than any other kingdom that has ever existed. I want to suggest that Jesus' kingdom last, will outlast any other kingdom. Um, I want to think about it in this context. Um, I'm really trying to wrestle with how to explain this, and so I hope that I do it justice. It'll work much better for all of us if you just pretend like you're interested, though. So um, you've got your update, you've got a pen, uh, pretend like you're taking notes, and it'll just keep me on track. Um, because I think this is really important to think about. This is a big defense for why I think Jesus is a big deal, um, and that's tweetable. Um, a few people pulling out their phones, all right. Uh, this is really important. So the, in the world right now, I want to look at three groups of people. You had the Romans. Now, here's the thing with the Romans. The Romans were a big deal. They owned most of the world. They had massive power. They had huge military strength. And they ruled over Jerusalem and over Judea and over Israel. They were a massive empire. And then you have the people of Israel. The people of Israel was a small little nation guided by a particular religion and a God, Yahweh. And they weren't free. They'd lived in captivity and they had lived under oppression since, since the days of their kings. And they too were looking for a ruler who would set them free. And then you have, that, so you have Romans, you have the people of Israel, and then you have this person, Jesus, and his new community. And Jesus' community, once again, not a big deal. Very small. When he, um, when he, he finished his time on, on earth, he probably had about 150 followers. Think about that in the Roman Empire of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, this little movement of 150. Not a big deal. So you have these three entities. Well, the Jewish people, they decided very early on that Jesus was not the Messiah for them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Jesus was not the ruler they had been waiting for. And so, 70 years after Christmas, 70 AD, a few Jewish rulers rose up and said, we are going to finally take our nation back. This, this actually happened. And they decide to revolt against the Romans, which is a dangerous thing to do because the Romans are a big military force. They revolt and they gain power of Jerusalem. And then this is what happens. The Caesar and the Roman Empire to make an example of the Israelite people, they send all of these forces to Jerusalem and they level the city. 
This is history. This just this happened. They destroy the temple. They destroy the city. The Jerusalem people had risen up a, a leader of their own, and they were going to take their country back. They were going to make Israel great again. And the Romans came in. Sorry, bad joke. <laughs> going to get political up in here. And the Romans came in, and they leveled it. And then a Roman historian came along. I want you to imagine what it was like to live through that and ask the question, what kind of kingdom is really great? In the midst of that time, what kind of kingdom is really great? And here is what the Roman historians said about a great kingdom. They looked at the kingdom of Rome and they looked at the kingdom of Israel and they looked at this, well, they didn't even look at this little new kingdom of Jesus because it was nobody. And this is what they decided. He wrote this, one of the historians wrote this in around a little after 70 AD after all this happened. He put it up there. The majority of the Jews were convinced that the ancient scriptures of their priests alluded to the present, the present time, as the very time when the Orient would triumph and from Judea would go forth men destined to rule the world. This mysterious prophecy really referred to Vespian and Titus, two Caesar empire, emperors. So he's saying they thought it would be one of their people, but it was really one of ours. But the common people, true to the selfish ambitions of mankind, thought that this exalted destiny was reserved for them. And not even their calamities, he's referring to the fall of Jerusalem, not even their calamities opened their eyes to the truth. In other words, this is what he's saying. These little foolish commoners, this little this little people of Israel over in this annoying little part of the world that are causing us all this trouble, they were so bold to think that some guy born in a town called a village, not even a town, a little village called Bethlehem would eventually rule the world. Oh my gosh, how silly they were. And overthrow the Romans? Are you kidding me? Think about it like this. How many of you have ever heard of the Emperor Vespian? None of you? One of you. Whew, good. One person. He was, a, he was an emperor. And when he was alive, he was a big deal. He was the emperor that led the destruction of Jerusalem. He had great military strength. And when the local papers were writing about this ruler that would come from Judea. They're like, well, it must be this Caesar who went to Judea. He must have gotten it wrong somehow because he's powerful and he can bring real change. How many of you have ever heard of Jesus? <laughs> it's a silly question. You're here, so you probably all have. In fact, most people in the world have, not everyone, but most people have. Vespian, 2,000 years later, is a nobody. Most people don't even know who he is. In fact, I haven't met a single person in my whole life who's dedicated their life to Vespian. I haven't. Jesus, on the other hand, this, he was a nobody, in a, in a sense, at one time, but this movement that was built on love and compassion and divine forgiveness, not only the ability that God would forgive me and my sins, but God enables me to forgive other people. 
a movement and a kingdom that's built often around a table. He says the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a party that's being thrown and people gather together. It's funny, he never says the kingdom of God is like a military power. He doesn't say that. It's this other kind of weird kingdom. And when it started, there were many skeptics and he wasn't even on the history books, but yet it slowly and slowly grew and has changed the world forever. In fact, 30% of the world's population right now claims to have some sort of identification of following Jesus, 30%. I don't know what percent follow Vespian anymore. There might be a few. I'm, I don't want to say there aren't. There could be. And now that I've suggested it, maybe a few of you will start the cult of Vespian as a response. I hope not. You know, I wonder sometimes we worry about if Jesus can really change anything, whether it'd be better to just be engaged in politics or quicker answers, regulation, changing this world. Because I think one thing most people agree on is that the world is not as it should be and that there's a need for change. And sometimes we want that immediate change and we wonder if like truly loving our enemies and forgiving those who wrong us and choosing to be filled with all of these things and what it means to follow Jesus, if that really is gonna change anything. I don't know if I'm the only one, but sometimes I wonder if that's actually producing any kind of change. And friends, all I can say is this, those who seem powerful today will one day be nothing but a blimp on the radar of history, nobodies. But those who choose to recognize Jesus as king, they get to be part of a movement that has been changing the world for 2,000 years. And that doesn't even go on to mention eternal life, which is like a bonus. Because Jesus's kingdom, although different and strange, lasts forever. Other kingdoms will come and go. Presidents and kings and dictators, they come and go. Jesus' kingdom lasts both now and into eternity. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because if you go to the beginning of the Christmas story, before Jesus is even born, this angel visits his mother, Mary, and this is what the angel says. It's, it's in the story over and over again, friends. He says, this angel talking to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom would, would never end, not just that his reign would last forever into eternity as if salvation is some ticket to heaven, but that his impact on the world would outlast King Herod, outlast the Romans, outlast Jerusalem, which means today his reign will last longer than the rule and impact of Obama, Trump, Putin, America, any other ruler or nation or power that you either love or hate, they won't outlast the impact that followers of Jesus are able to make. They might do great harm, including genocide. They might do great good, but they will all end up as nothing more than just another chapter in history books, whereas Jesus's impact will go on. And that's a kingdom that will last. And, and, and so going back to the Magi, somehow the Magi knew this. Unlike many people of their time, 
They, they believed somehow, and we don't know the, the reason, they believed that Jesus was the king who was gonna come and rule the world out of Judea. They probably had no idea how it would play out, and they, they probably didn't know what it was gonna look like or how it was gonna work, but they sought Jesus out, and when they found him, something clicked. So go back to Matthew, verse 11. The Magi come to the house. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and something clicked, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Somehow, knew, they knew, they were standing in the presence of a king that was a big deal. And it goes on, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first Christmas presents. I told you we'd get back to gift giving. A lot of people have attached a lot of different meaning to these gifts, but here's the best explanation. It's not complicated. These were very expensive gifts that you would give a king. You can, I mean, there's sometimes people will apply other meanings to them, but the most basic explanation of these gifts is culturally speaking, they were very expensive and they were gifts reserved for royalty. And friends, that is exactly who Jesus is. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. A king has been born. So the first Christmas presents were gifts fit for a king. So going back to gift giving, um, as we understand the intent of the first Christmas presents, what does this say about us giving gifts at Christmas time? Well, if I was a kid here today, and we have a few, I would turn to my mom and say, see mom, Christmas gifts are meant to be fit for a king. <laughs> that's, one, that's one takeaway. And if my mom was clever, which my mom is clever for the record, she listens to the podcast, I had to th- include that. Um, I could imagine her even saying this, she would look back at me and say, yes, they were meant, they, they should be fit for a king and they should be given to a king too. I think one of the biggest issues Uh, that we make around Christmas season is we put ourselves in the place of Jesus. That we might, by accident even, think the story is about you. And uh, as the old uh, poet once said, this song is not about you. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Christmas isn't your birthday. It's not. And the Christmas story isn't about you. It's about a king who's being born. And and one thing remains the same. Everyone who gets it, everyone who realizes that Jesus is the king of the world and that his strange and different kingdom is going to change the world and has changed the world, they do the same thing. You see it over and over again in scripture. They fall on their knees and they worship. The magi, that's what they do. They fell on their knees and they worshiped and then they gave a gift worthy of a king. There's another story later in the gospels where Jesus is hanging out with some Pharisees and this uh, prostitute comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' feet. She falls on her knees and then she pours out perfume that's worth a year's salary, another way of saying a gift worthy of a king and she washes and anoints Jesus. In fact, this is how it says it in Philippians 2, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king. If you really want to celebrate Christmas in line with the Christmas story this year, your gift giving should be the same. And while I don't think there's anything wrong with giving gifts to each other, in fact, I encourage it, babe. But first, we need to ask this question. This Christmas, what are you giving to Jesus? So if I was to make a wiki how on how to give yourself to Jesus this Christmas, it would look like this. Full circle, friends. Step one, seek. You see the Magi, they traveled from their home country in search of a king. So the question is, is how far will you travel? How long will you search? How long will you seek? How much are you willing to put into looking and thinking and wrestling with these deep questions in order to stumble on that king that takes your breath away? Step two, kneel. When you've found Jesus and you realize that he is the king of the world, kneel, which is another way of saying this. Physically put yourself in a position where you are not as high as you once were. Not that kneeling is unique or anything, but, but it, it, it forces us then to think spiritually or relationally, lowering yourself to the place that we belong. So taking yourself off the throne and letting Jesus sit there, putting yourself in the right place in the story. Kneel. And then step three, give. Like the wise men, when you encounter a king, you have to have a gift worthy of a king. And this could be the Christmas where you give to Jesus the kind of gift that the Magi give, gave, a, a gift worthy of a king. But here's what I want to say to us. You have a gift right now that you could give to Jesus that is better than gold, better than frankincense, better than myrrh. It's this, you. You could be the gift. Here's how Romans 6.13 says it. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him. When we talk about how Jesus is a king, this is what we mean. We mean that we are claiming that Jesus is our ultimate authority. And I'll be honest with you, friends, I got issues with authority. I know some of you got issues with authority. And we have issues with authority because we've, we've had been in unhealthy relationships. We've worked with, maybe had terrible bosses or demanding parents. We've, we've had all of these issues with authority because of, we've had bad experiences with authority. Um, in fact, I would say that most of the problems in the church today are because the church is sometimes an unhealthy authority in people's lives that we as parents and, and church and anyone with power likes to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. So when I say surrender your life to the authority of Jesus, I'm not saying submit to my authority, submit to a church's authority, although there's, there's a place for that and we can get to that some other time. I'm just saying right now, what it means is submitting to Jesus, that Jesus becomes the ultimate king. So have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus's authority? If not, Today could be the day. In fact, I want to go one step further. I want to say this, that this Christmas, whether we're talking about God 
or your relationship with your kids or your relationship with friends or your roommate or your spouse or your parents, the best gift you have to give isn't something you buy. The best gift you ever have to give is yourself, your time, your attention, your devotion, your love. And this is what Jesus showed us, that he came not only as a king, but he came to give of himself that we might have life. So if this Christmas, what if we followed Jesus' example and viewed ourselves as the gift and we gave ourselves to those we love because we first surrendered ourselves to the king of the world? I want to give you some time. If you're here today and and you feel like you've sought God out and, you've, and you're ready to kneel or you're ready to you know, kneel or you're ready to give of yourself to God, I, I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm not try, I don't want to manipulate anyone. I don't want to like, convince anyone. I mean, that's God's job. I just want to create the space as we pray together for you to say, God, I'm yours. I'm ready. I've been holding back. I've been holding this thing back or this thing back, whatever it is for you. But today, once again, maybe for the first time, for the hundredth time, I'm ready to surrender. I'm going to give you some time to do that. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to take communion. And we're going to take communion because that is part of the picture that God has given us about the kingdom, this backwards kingdom built around relationships and fellowship. Jesus came and he, he offered his body and his blood so that we might commune, that we might share with one another. And so we're going to invite you to come forward, and Alyssa will kind of walk us through that process. But before we do, let's go into a season, just a few moments of prayer. And if you feel that you need to kneel, you're welcome to. Or if you just want to kneel in your own heart, you're welcome to. I want to give you some time to recalibrate and to refocus and to remind ourselves, all of us, what Christmas is really about. Let's pray. God, we come before you. Lord, we name in our hearts now those things that we've been holding on to. We confess before you our unhealthy expectations from other people, our sense of entitlement. We confess before you our greed. We confess our doubts, our, our, our fears. Lord, we even confess those moments where we think that power or violence, or politics, or rulers of this world, world are, the, are the means where you're going to change. We confess that, that we're wrong, and that your quiet, simple, love-focused community is really what's going to change, and we submit our lives to you. We surrender to you. Lord, as we come and we share in your body and your blood, as we break bread and drink juice, representing your sacrifice and the new community that you're inviting us into, we ask that it be a sign of what it means to be a part of your kingdom, to sit at your table, to be a part of this crazy movement that's still changing the world. We trust that you'll meet us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would fall on these elements of bread and juice and you'd make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ. It's in your name we pray and all of God's people said, amen.